0: This morning I'll be reading from Psalm 126. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they send among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who has gone out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, good morning again. Well, <laughs> um, and once again, I feel like uh, the word for the kids has already preached my sermon. So thank you, Greg. Uh, Hope you all had a Merry Christmas, and that includes uh, those of you who are kids, teenagers, and those of you who are grown-ups as well. Hope you experienced the joy of Christmas and had a happy new year. Um, Before we look at Psalm 126, let me pray for us. Would you join me? Lord, we come to you and we come uh, before your word expectantly. Lord, I'm uh, up here in vain If your spirit does not come also. And so we pray, Come, Holy Spirit, preach to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. G.K. Chesterton explains what he calls the inner ring and the outer ring of Christianity. This is in his book, Orthodoxy. The outer ring he calls a rigid guard of ethical abnegations and the obviously unattractive doctrine of original sin. In other words, people often see Christianity from the outside as a sort of straitjacket, something that stifles freedom and fun. Upon further examination, Chesterton says, the moral imperatives that might uh, first be seen as stifling are actually cause for great flourishing. So while the outer ring appears stifling, the inner ring of Christianity, Chesterton calls, dancing like children and drinking wine like men. Now, that's a very uh, early 20th century British way of saying uninhibited joy. That the deeper you go, the more you grasp the true story that Christianity tells of the world, the more reason there is for true and lasting joy and celebration. Chesterton then contrasts Christianity with what he calls modern philosophy, which says, in his words, Everything is permissible because in the end, you make your own truth. This life philosophy, he says, is the opposite. The outer ring looks freeing because it's permissive of whatever people feel is okay for themselves. Live your truth. But the deeper you go, you find only despair. And the despair is this, he writes, that it does not really believe that there is any meaning in the universe Therefore, it cannot hope to find any romance or any ultimate joy. My contention today as we move through Psalm 126 is that Christians have reason for joy, reason to celebrate, a reason to party. And we're unfortunately not known for joyful celebration. A good example of this is uh, from the line of another song, uh, an old song, a Billy Joel song. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Oh, the sinners are much more fun. My wife Naomi said uh, recently that was the AOL instant messenger profile quote of choice in her high school. Some of you are about my age. You'll identify with it. The AIM profile. People view Christianity rightly in some cases and wrongly in others as being the opposite of fun, the opposite of joy. But Christians have reason for joy, reason to celebrate, not in a hollow, cheap kind of way that ignores the harsh realities of the world, but in a way that recognizes the saddest and harshest realities, mourns them and their ill effects on our world, but has overcome them. The promise is that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And the question is, How does that happen? Some of you are in a place in life where your present circumstances make the possibility of joy and celebration seem impossible. You're just trying to get by day to day, struggling with your job, finances, or loneliness, or what appears a bleak future. And maybe Christmas, far from being The time of joy and celebration was a reminder of what you've lost, who you've lost, your loneliness. So what does joy look like amidst all the brokenness and sadness of the world? How does the Lord turn our weeping into shouts of joy? As we move through this psalm, we'll look at three things. Joy remembered, joy renewed, and lastly, joy resurrected. But first, joy remembered. The mood of the first half of this psalm, verses 1 to 3, is one of dreamy happiness. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. This is a communal psalm, uses we language. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then our mouth, that's singular, our collective mouth as a people was filled with laughter and our tongue, our collective tongue, with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Whatever this uh, time, is ref- whatever time this is referring to in Israel's history, it remains a vivid national memory. The whole assembly of those who worship the Lord had reason to celebrate. We may think of a couple historical instances that have remained in our Collective national consciousness. We may think of the moments after the, the British surrendered to George Washington's troops at Yorktown and the American colonists had won the hard fought war for independence and they sang in the pubs of the world being turned upside down. Or we may think of uh, VE Day or VJ Day, victory in Europe and Japan, the end of the brutal Second World War, ending in freedom, victory. For the United States there was communal joy there was singing in churches and in the pubs dancing in the streets as soldiers returned home here in Psalm 126 the mood is dreamy and euphoric but it's in the past tense it's now only a distant memory they remember the joy they had when the Lord restored their fortunes but it's not their present reality There's some translations that interpret the end of verse 3 in past tense, and I tend to agree with that rendering. It was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us, and we were glad. And maybe you can identify with this personally. Maybe you think back to a simpler time in your life, a time when joy seemed much more the norm, much more natural. When the Lord had done great things for you, but now it seems a distant memory. Now it's just nostalgia. The psalm does not end here. And as it progresses, it suggests that those times in life when joy seems so natural, or those moments now when joy breaks through the present sadness, are not only something to pray for, but our times that the Lord will again restore, something that we will again receive and experience. G.K. Chesterton, again, describes our fallen world as a, a sort of cosmic shipwreck. He writes that moments of pleasure are the remnants washed ashore from the shipwreck, bits of paradise extended through time that tell us what life was supposed to be and what our world will be again. And we are meant to enjoy and celebrate these moments, though with humility and restraint, never seizing them as our own entitlements. What he's saying is joy is the natural state of the world. The world was created in joy. The Lord stopped after each creation day to rest and revel in and enjoy his good creation. When the Lord uh, questions Job, he asks him, Job, this is Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, the angelic beings, shouted for joy? The world began in joy and will be restored to everlasting joy by the God of joy. Dane Ortlund writes, consider what Christianity actually is. It's turning from every hollow pleasure of this world to real joy, solid joy, not empty excitement, the kind of deep happiness that makes us truly human, which we long for and stumble around seeking to find, but often miss. And C.S. Lewis writes uh, that we humans are half-hearted creatures, we're fooling around, fooling about Seeking ultimate joy with sex and drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Those nostalgic moments of joy, of wonder, they're not only about joy remembered, but second, they're about joy renewed. Remembering the joyful times doesn't just lead to nostalgia, but to hope for the future in this psalm. Verse 4 echoes verse 1, not as a sigh, but as a hopeful, confident prayer. It's not, oh, what used to be when the Lord restored our fortunes, but rather, restore our fortunes once again, O Lord. And then the psalmist uses two very different images for renewal. The first, verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. The word Negeb means dry or parched, it was a desert region in South Judah. The psalmist is praying for a dramatic outpouring of God's presence for streams in the desert. And there are few transformations more dramatic than that from a dry desert to a flooded area. But there's also a slower path to renewal. We see in verses five and six which includes sowing with tears, laboring, weeping, but eventually reaping and gathering with shouts of joy. The psalmist uses this image of farming. Jesus and Paul also use it. And nearly everyone in this context would have been familiar. Sowing seeds does not mean immediate fruit. You have to wait. Nor is there a guarantee what will happen to that one individual seed, that it will bear fruit. But... The point is faithful labor, planting enough seeds accompanied by water and light from above will inevitably bear fruit. And so what does the psalmist have in mind when he uses these two metaphors of flooding and farming? The Lord restoring the fortunes of his people, which can happen in a moment. The Lord flooding a place with the fullness of his presence. Or it can happen over a long time of daily faithful obedience The metaphors are broad enough that we can apply uh, them to both uh, our own spiritual growth and to evangelism. To both those who have long prayed and wept over their own sins, and those who have planted seeds of the gospel, watered and prayed and wept over those who don't know the Lord and his love. When it comes to our own sanctification, our, our growth in the Lord can happen by a flood of the Spirit, and we can pray for that though it usually means being cut to the core. It's very uncomfortable. But our spiritual growth happens most of the time through our daily sowing, daily putting our sin to death and allowing our hearts and lives to be continually shaped by the gospel. And when it comes to evangelism, we sometimes see the Lord pour out his spirit, such as in times of revival. We should pray for revival without ceasing to labor faithfully, planting and watering. When I ministered in Ireland, some of the old men there would would sometimes talk about the Lewis Revival. The Isle of Lewis is way up in the northwest of Scotland. In the late 1940s, it was full of uh, dry, dying churches with no young people attending. There was still a a, a sort of uh, religion practiced in form, but it was a going through the motions. And so these two sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith, 84 and 82 years old, one completely blind and the other hunched over with arthritis, began to pray together late into the night for their local parish church, feeling that the Lord was saying to them, Isaiah 44.3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And they asked their minister to hold prayer gatherings at the church twice a week, while they prayed simultaneously from their cottage and as people prayed together that winter of 1949 and 50 sometimes in unheated buildings in northern Scotland all had a sense that the Lord was saying ask me for revival and they did ask and there was one group that reported gathering to pray in a barn it lasted until 3 a.m. when they traveled back to their homes They found that every light was on in every home they passed. No one could sleep because an awareness of God's presence was overwhelming. People were literally kneeling along the roads, praying and repenting. There are stories of hundreds of young people flooding out of dance halls, going into the church, weeping with no explanation of what caused it other than a sovereign work of the Spirit. They were going through the outer rim of Christianity, weeping and repenting over their sins to get to the inner ring of having deep joy in knowing Christ. The Lord flooded the ground with his overwhelming presence. Could go on and on with more stories from the Lewis revival or the Welsh revival of 1904, or great awakenings in the U.S. and England, or what happened in South Korea in the early part of the 20th century, what happened in certain parts of China and Africa, in the latter part of the 20th century, or even more recently in Iran or parts of India. Of course, these aren't the normal expected conditions, but I do think that the miraculous working of the Spirit in the past bids us to view places that are presently dry with hard soil as potential flood zones. There's nothing the Lord can't do What history shows is not a a steady decline of Christianity for the last 500 years as we sometimes imagine. But what history shows is a continual ebb and flow, dry, arid periods followed by the Lord pouring out His Spirit. In the last 100 years, on places never before dreamt of, Christianity by far the most diverse culture-crossing religion but the Psalm isn't asking us to choose to either pray for revival or labor faithfully planting seeds. It's calling us to do both, to pray earnestly, calling on the Lord to act while faithfully sowing in tears. Do we believe that the Lord can do something like on the Isle of Lewis in our day in greater Boston? Do we pray for revival? We should. And at the same time, we should faithfully sow and water. Paul uses the picture in 1 Corinthians 3 I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I was talking recently to um, Kara Whitaker, some of you know, our uh, children's director, at my church, whose who family moved to Texas over the summer. And she was telling me that she often thinks about all the Jesus storybook Bibles that we gave away. Uh, to unchurched families at our Easter egg hunt, other events that we had. And she said, if the Lord causes any of those books to be read, if one of those families, many of whom are from uh, backgrounds that they would have never heard the story of Jesus, uh, many of whom South Asian, East Asian, if one of those families read about Jesus together for the first time, it all will have been worth it. And so we faithfully sow seeds, we water, we pray, and we look to God to give the growth. Closer to our own time and place, I read an interview uh, that Tim Keller gave recently. In the early days when Redeemer Presbyterian was planted in Manhattan, about two-thirds of their growth happened through conversions. Hundreds of people that gave their life to Christ and joined Redeemer. It happened mostly through Christians having real friendships outside the church. And when their non-Christian friends had some crisis in life, it was the Christians who loved and came around them and helped them pick up the pieces and shared the hope of Christ or invited them to church. It can happen. The Lord can make a garden out of a desert. Will we be like those who, according to Jesus' parable, reap a harvest of 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold? That's not up to us to decide. That's the point. There are uncertainties in farming. But when you faithfully sow, though it often may be slow, long-suffering with weeping and prayer, you will reap a harvest with shouts of joy. The psalmist sees that through the veil of sorrows, on the other side of weeping, there's joy. The night of sorrow will one day turn to the morning of gladness. And so let's look then at joy resurrected. In one sense, this psalm does not end with this psalm. What I mean is it points us forward. It awaits fulfillment. The restoration of joy is both a prayer and a promise throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, a prominent Advent text, you likely read it maybe every week, reads verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. But we often don't read on. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Why so much joy? Goes on to describe how God will set his people free from the burden, the yoke of their oppressors. How? Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus is the restoration of the fortunes of all God's people. Jesus is the fulfillment of joy. This is why uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Luke's gospel are overflowing with joy. The baby, John the Baptist, leaping for joy in his mother's womb. Mary's song of joy. The angels announcing to the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine at a wedding, was to signify that overflowing joy had come, never to run out again. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus' life was not all bliss, not pain-free nor will ours ever be. As Tish Harrison Warren writes, when we look to the life of Jesus, we see a man fully alive to both weeping and laughter, to pain and joy. He drank both to the dregs. Jesus said to his disciples on the night when he was betrayed in John 16, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy. He then compares the situation to a woman giving birth in pain and agony, but all that is hardly remembered at the joy of seeing a baby brought into the world. He's not minimizing the pain of childbirth, and neither am I, but he's maximizing the lasting joy that comes on the other side. That even the most severe labor for 48 hours How can you compare that to a child brought into the world that lives 80 years? Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now for a short while, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. For those who are in Christ, there is a joy, a celebration that begins now and goes on forever and can never be taken away. It doesn't mean that we don't mourn the things of this life. It means that we have to. We should mourn our sin, that sin which led Jesus to the cross. To paraphrase John Stott, before we see the cross of Christ as something done for us, we must mourn the cross as something done by us. To get into the inner ring of Christianity where all the joy and celebration live, we have to first go through the outer ring, of mourning over our sins. But in coming to terms with our own sin, our lack of deserving, we have all the more joy. Because no one has joy like someone who's given a gift that they know they don't deserve. And so it's only by the gospel, completed in the resurrection of Jesus, that our weeping turns to joy. And maybe the best example of this in all of history of Mourning turned into joy is Mary Magdalene in John 20. After Jesus is crucified, Mary's weeping in the garden, and Jesus in his resurrected body appears to her and asks her why she's weeping. But she doesn't recognize him or or doesn't pay any attention. She assumes it's the gardener. And then the good shepherd gently says her name, Mary. And in that moment, all of her mourning turns to joy, We know that we who sow weeping will come home with shouts of joy, with laughter. Why? Because of Jesus, because his resurrection changes not only how we see the cross, but all the pain and sorrow of this life. Tish Harrison Warren wrote last Easter, The resurrection is the only evidence that love triumphs over death, weakness prevails over strength, and beauty outlives ashes. If Jesus is risen in actual history, flesh, fingers, bone, and blood, there is hope that our mourning will be comforted and that death will not have the final word. It's because of the resurrection that we can have joy, that we can know that all will turn out for good in the end. There's a quote that I first saw on a refrigerator magnet. It's often wrongly attributed to John Lennon. It says, everything will be okay in the end, If it's not okay, it's not yet the end. And I don't know what uh, worldview that's coming from. It's uh, Fernando Sabino, a Brazilian author. But it is consistent with the Christian hope. Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not yet the end. Earlier this year, my four-year-old Liam uh, liked for me to read to him The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Not the full chapter book version, but a much shorter sort of board book version for younger children. The first time we read it together, for those of you who know the story, you know Aslan, the lion uh, who represents Jesus, gives himself in place of the traitor Edmund, and the witch and her minions lead Aslan away and shame and torture and kill him, though it doesn't quite get that graphic in uh, the children's book. At that point, I stopped and said to Liam, Oh no, they took Aslan away. What's going to happen? And he thought about it, and he looked at me, and he said, I think the lion is going to win. And that became his, his sort of line at that point in the book. Every time we would read it, I think the lion is going to win. Now what makes a child believe against all hope in the story That the good guys are going to win? Is it just that a child is naive, that they haven't faced the harsh realities of life, that all the stories that they read or watch have happy endings? You know, we haven't shown him Old Yeller. He hasn't uh, read any Cormac McCarthy novels. Or is it maybe that there's something innate, something deep down inside of us, that tells us that in the end, in the very end, The good guys always win. That though this world may be harsh, as C.S. Lewis puts it, there's a deeper magic from before the dawn of time. That there's a world of joy that outlasts this sadness. A reality that's more real. Jesus' resurrection proclaims that in the end, ultimately, the lion wins. Jesus wins on our behalf. Joy wins over sadness. The resurrection proclaims that that childlike inner hope is not too good to be true. There's this great phrase in Luke 24 in the account of Jesus' resurrection that's easy to miss. After Jesus showed the disciples his hands and his feet, we read in Luke 24, verse 41, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, they disbelieved for joy It was too good to be true, but it was true. The resurrection transforms how we live now because it proclaims that our ultimate end is not death and that future days will be different, better than the ones recently passed in this life. The resurrection is the beginning of the new creation, the beginning of God making all things new. And so we return to where we started. The inner ring of Christianity, dancing like children and drinking wine like men. Dana Ortland writes, life in Christ is a celebration, not shallow merriment, but a deep pain-acknowledging celebration for we know the best is yet to come. Maybe we need to repent of not celebrating enough, of not partying over Jesus enough, Now don't get me wrong, the message of Christianity is not laugh more, weep less, nor is it weep more, laugh less. The gospel frees us up to weep now and to laugh heartily because we know where all this is going. So here's my closing application. This new year, I want you to celebrate. I want you to rejoice. I want you to party. Technically, it's still Christmas. Christmas lasts for 12 days. You can look a number of different ways, but I want you to lift up your hearts to the Lord with joy. If you're a Christian, you have a lot to celebrate. Christ has come. Joy to the world. He's lived the life that you were required to live, but could never live. And he's done it on your behalf. Christ has died. He's died the death you deserved in your place to set you free. Christ is risen. The lion has won. He's turned our weeping into joy, laughter. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And Christ will come again and restore joy to all the world. From the perspective of eternity, our sorrows are short lived. Their labor pains compared to the world of joy that the Lord will restore, a world without end. We pray with me. Lord, give us the grace to hope, and in hope, would we find joy. Would we keep our eyes fixed on you, the founder and perfecter of our faith? We can only do this by a work of your spirit. And so we ask for it, even as we approach your table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.